to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man there was named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to him, uh, excuse me, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. And all who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. And then Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. People want to see two things at once, in my experience. I mean, they want to stand out, get noticed, leave a mark on the world, but they'd also like to stay close enough to the herd that they don't get picked off by the predators. I mean, people want to be recognized, but they also want to make sure that they don't stick their heads up too high. Fewer points in a person's life rival this weird contradiction better than the experience of middle school. I mean, it's that feeling of wanting everyone to know your name, but not wanting any of the reasons that they know it to stem from the fact that you wear hand-me-downs or that you're the last one in the locker room to reach puberty. I mean, middle school exists, I think, to teach us humility. The lessons that we learned uh, are, are, are burned so deeply into us that we're conditioned for the rest of our lives to pick up the scent of potential embarrassment like a bomb-sniffing police dog at a fireworks factory. Now, my family moved into a bigger house across town the summer before I went into sixth grade. As the oldest of four children, a place with my own bedroom sounded like heaven. I've never had a bedroom that was just mine since, actually. I mean, I could put up my own posters. I, in the middle of the night, if I tripped over something, it would be my stuff that I was tripping over, not somebody else's. I mean, I was pretty excited. 
But my excitement was tempered by the knowledge that we'd be changing school districts and I'd be with all new kids. I mean, I wouldn't even know anybody. We didn't have the same breakdown where I went to school as they do uh, grade-wise today. Grade school went back in my school from kindergarten to sixth grade. Uh, middle school was seventh, eighth, and ninth. So I had a whole year in sixth grade to try to make friends before I had to start riding the bus to school with teenagers. And, and to be totally honest, I didn't have much success. I mean, I knew some names and faces, but I, I didn't really have many friends, except a couple of kids from my neighborhood who most of the people that I considered cool thought were just weirdos. But before beginning seventh grade, my parents were given a list of things that I needed to buy. I mean, it's nothing exciting, right? All, all the usual stuff, notebooks, pencils, erasers, you know, the, the stuff that has been on every back-to-school list since people still bought inkwells and slide rulers. However, something on that list escaped my attention until my mom showed up with a bag of school supplies. I started pulling stuff out of there, looking at it, and then I pulled out this, this, this mystery out of the bag to discover that it was a blue pair of gym shorts and a white t-shirt, both emblazoned with the school's name and mascot in yellow. And my mom noticed my excitement and she said, the list uh, that they sent home said that you, you got to dress for gym uh, and this is the uniform that you have to wear. I mean, everybody has to. Awesome. I, mean, I threw everything back in this bag and promptly forgot about it until the day before school. And then my mom told me that uh, she wanted me to try everything on before she wa uh, be so she could wash them. So I, I got my new gym uniform out of the bag and I put on the shirt. It was perfect. But then when I unfolded the shorts, they looked like one of those American flags that fly over truck stops off the interstate. The ones that look like the, you can see them from space. And I looked, I peered over at my mom, uh, who could immediately see the problem. And I said, what, are these supposed to be for dad? <laughs> and defensive, my mom said, no. I, I didn't know what your size was anymore. You, you've grown so fast this summer. I, I told the, the bookstore clerk how tall you were and how much you weighed, and this is what he gave me. I couldn't believe my, I, I, I said, what did you tell him, that I'm the same size as Andre the Giant? <laughs> I mean, I only weighed 104 pounds, for crying out loud. I, I don't understand, That's the, the, the clerk said that these would fit. Yeah, well, guess what? The clerk was wrong. Well, it's too late now, just let me wash them, and maybe they'll shrink some so that people won't notice. And I clung to that hope desperately. I probably shouldn't have. When they came out of the dryer, I could tell immediately. I mean, if shorts were clown shoes, my middle school gym shorts could have been worn by Bozo himself. He's enormous, floppy, ready to fall off. 
Good thing I had a safety pin in the back to hold him up. I mean, I had no choice. I had to go to my first day of middle school gym class looking, I was sure, like a kid wearing a hula coop with an extra long uh, fringe attached. My one saving grace was that I'd just gotten a new pair of glasses, and they were the coolest glasses that I'd ever owned. Tinted lenses, teardrop shape. It was a definite step up from the black nerd glasses held together by duct tape and bent straight pins that I'd been wearing for so long because they were the cheapest and because my parents said that they weren't buying anything more expensive until I quit breaking my glasses every other week. But I think that they were maybe trying to give me a little boost of self-esteem heading into middle school, so they bought me a new pair of glasses. And it was the thought of those glasses that allowed me to hold my head up as I walked through the locker room in my unfortunate shorts. I withstood the taunts about how I looked like I was swimming in them, and because what, did I get my hand-me-downs from King Kong? Ha ha, very funny. But see, I knew I could take it. I figured I looked like Robert Conrad as a fighter pilot, you know, Pappy Boyington and Baba Black Sheep. I loved how that felt, it, it, if only fleetingly. But in my reverie, I failed to see Bob Jerzak coming. He was getting ready for football practice when his shoulder pad caught me right underneath my right eye, flinging my glasses off and onto the floor. And back then, lenses were made from guess what? Yeah, glass. <laughs> And after stupid Bob Jerzak, the locker room floor was covered in shards of it. Standing there in a pile of glass slivers in my bozo shorts, I wished more than anything in the world that I could just disappear. I mean, have you ever felt like that? Like, like, like you want your name in, 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 in lights, but you don't want anyone to watch the actual Hollywood biopic of your life too closely? In our gospel for today, we find Jesus passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Now, his reputation obviously precedes him because a crowd has gathered to listen to him speak. And apparently the crowd is so large that one of the spectators can't quite get a good view. Everybody's head keeps getting in the way, so he climbs up a tree to catch a glimpse of this Jesus guy that everybody's been talking about. And when Jesus arrives at the place, Luke tells us, he looks up to see Zacchaeus sitting in a tree, his neck craned, trying to catch Jesus' eye. Zacchaeus is zeteo, which is to say he's searching to find Jesus. And that Greek word will become even more significant shortly. Well, lo and behold, Jesus notices him and tells him to get down out of the tree because Jesus is going to invite himself to Zacchaeus' house. But before we settle into lunch on Zacchaeus' veranda, we should probably talk about who Zacchaeus is and why Jesus going to his house is kind of a big deal. Anybody, any guesses? 
That's right, because Zacchaeus isn't just a wee little man. He's a tax collector. And if you remember from last week's parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, you recall that tax collectors in Roman-occupied Palestine were never voted most admired by the folks whose taxes they collected. I mean, they made their living on the backs of their neighbors by selling out to Roman oppressors. But not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, Luke tells us he was a chief tax collector. In other words, Luke wants us to know right up front, in addition to being part of a special class of people that everybody else hated, Zacchaeus was also really, really good at it. So good, in fact, that his colleagues made him the boss, which means he was rich in a land of dirt-poor peasants. Consequently, Jesus would have caused another big stir <coughs> among the perpetually scowling religious elite by announcing that he wanted to go to this guy's house. Now, thinking back over the previous 18 chapters, we know that Lucas spilled a lot of ink in chronicling Jesus' penchant for hanging out with the wrong people, at least by the standards of the religious hall monitors who kept track of such things at the time. Now, Zacchaeus, he, he also knows that he's climbing out on a very narrow limb when he clambers up the sycamore tree seeking to find Jesus. I mean, he wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't really want the crowd along the parade route to see him. Indeed, he's, he's not even entirely sure he wants Jesus to see him until, of course, that is, Jesus sees him. Luke tips us off to the fraught atmosphere around this encounter by, by letting us know that as soon as Jesus announces his intention to go to Zacchaeus' house, all who saw him started to grumble. According to John A.T. Robinson, grumbling among themselves is the characteristic reaction every time Jesus comes in contact with the religious leaders. And this time's no different. When they finally arrive, your pew Bible says, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. To which Jesus responds, Today salvation has come to this house, for he too is a son of Abraham. Now, as a result of this and similar translations, the story has traditionally been read as a kind of classic template for repentance and forgiveness. You know, a, a, a USDA grade A jerk confesses his wrongdoing and promises to make amends. Go thou and do likewise. But unfortunately, the verbs in Greek are translated as future tense, that is to say, uh, I will give to the poor. I will pay back four times as much. But more simply, it, it, it reads in this translation like, I see the error of my ways, and from now on, I'm going to make things right. Now, I say unfortunately, however, because the Greek verbs translated as future tense are actually written in present tense. Instead of I will give to the poor, I will pay back, 
The more natural reading is, I'm already giving to the poor. I'm already paying back four times as much. In which case, this isn't so much a story about repentance and forgiveness, uh, the, 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 the template for an ideal conversion story. It's not so much that as it is about a local high roller who's so desperate to see Jesus that he's willing to humiliate himself by climbing up a tree to catch a glimpse. I mean, he'd like to remain hidden if he can, but he's willing to risk appearing like a clown and in the process incurring a huge debt of shame. And frankly, given his reputation, shame is something he can do without. He's got plenty of that already. But he's desperate, searching. He wants to see Jesus without being seen by the crowd, if, if he can help it. What he doesn't count on, however, is Jesus seeing him. And that's the thing. Jesus sees Zacchaeus because he's on a mission himself. Jesus, like Zacchaeus, is Zeteo, Luke tells us, searching to find, or as your pew Bible puts it, the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus risks everything to see Jesus, but the beautiful surprise in this story is that because he's on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus will risk everything to see people like Zacchaeus. See, and that's the good news of this story. Anyone who wants to see Jesus will see him. But perhaps even more importantly, anyone who wants to see Jesus will be seen by him. The promise of the reign of God is that we will be seen, all of us, for who we really are. And we won't have to worry anymore about everybody seeing all of us, even the most humiliating parts. Now, if we want to follow Jesus, our job is to try to seek out others who desperately are themselves trying to be seen, to see them as they truly are, children of God, people God loves just as much as God loves us. A little over 10 years ago, Susan and I went to Seattle <clears throat> so that I could preach the the annual uh, Matthew Shepherd sermon at Trinity Episcopal Church in downtown Seattle. And the, 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 the priest of Trinity Parish at the time, his name was Father Paul Collins, and he drove Susan and I back to the airport on the Monday morning following that Sunday service. And we were talking about Trinity, which is a historic and lovely downtown church. So it appears uh, 10 years prior, back in uh, February of 2001, the, an earthquake measuring 6.8 on the Richter scale hit Seattle. And Trinity Parish, which is this beautiful old stone Gothic sort of cathedral, is heavily damaged. The repairs to the church would ultimately cost a lot of money when it all came do. So Father Paul, he said that um, there were do donations that came in from all over uh, to repair the church. People seemed 
anxious to make sure that Trinity got back on its feet. And that makes sense, I mean, especially if you know that Trinity houses the largest soup kitchen in Seattle, serving over 3,000 meals a week. It's also beside a tent city that houses a large number of houseless people, which exists under this enormous overpass on I-5, just a short distance from the church. Consequently, the church has all kinds of people coming in and out daily, and not all of them are candidates for postcards, as you might imagine. According to Father Paul, one woman came in regularly for food and assistance, and the church had a donation jar by all the doors to receive gifts from people who were interested in helping the church rebuild. And Father Paul happened to be there one day when this woman came in, and she pulled out a handful of rumpled $1 bills, and she gave them to him. And she said, it's, it's for the church, uh, you know, to rebuild it. And Father Paul said to me, Oh, well, of course, my, my reflex reaction was to hold up my hands and say, that's, that's okay, you keep it. But then she looked at me, he said, the hurt in her eyes. I mean, you could just see it. It, it was like I told her, your gifts aren't good enough for us. That, that's what she heard, and I don't blame her. He said, I, I was wrong. I mean, I could see that right off. So I just stopped and I said, thank you. That's very kind of you. We'll put it to good use. And immediately he said, you could see her gather herself up, her dignity intact. And it struck me, this isn't my church. This is God's church. Who am I? I don't have any right to reject the gifts of those who bring what they have to God. And, th and that's just it, isn't it? People have long brought the gifts of their lives to the church, and the church, for a variety of reasons, has often said, no, that's okay, you keep it. Those who've stood outside there with their noses pressed against the stained glass just trying to get a glimpse, they've come to the church on countless occasions, and how often have they been turned away or made to feel as though the gifts they bear are somehow inferior? Not up to the church's exacting standards, not worthy of being in the presence of the holy God. But here's the thing. Those doors aren't gates to keep people out. Those doors are an entryway to welcome people in. We're supposed to be greeters, not bouncers. Everyone willing to risk humiliation by trying to see Jesus, everyone who wants to be truly seen and loved anyway, is met by God and embraced. And in that embrace, you and I should be the loving arms that God extends. Amen.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.